This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 25th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, staff writer Gretchen Vogel is here with a story on using genetic information for forensic purposes. This is things like taking DNA from a crime scene and using it to tell what color a suspect's eyes might be. Jill Fernandez is here to talk about her research from Science Advances that looks into testing mosquitoes for Zika on the cheap by shining infrared light on them. And in our monthly book segment, Jennifer Goldback talks with Sarah Jane Blakemore about her book, Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. Now we have staff writer Gretchen Vogel. She's here to talk about using genetic information to try to catch criminals. Hi, Gretchen. Hi. This story is sparked by a new law being passed in Bavaria. So what does this law do? What is it trying to uh, either rule in or rule out? The law that Bavaria passed last week deals with situations in which the police believe there is an imminent threat of a crime about to be committed. It doesn't actually deal with crimes that have already been committed. Oh. That is governed by federal law in Germany. And federal law still prohibits any use of DNA beyond the sort of well-known DNA fingerprinting, where you can match the DNA found at a crime scene with an exact match of a suspect. So what does this Bavarian law allow them to do if there is an imminent threat? If there's an imminent threat and they have a DNA trace, whether that's on, say, a cache of weapons or bomb-making materials or another example that the police gave was if there's a stalker who seems to be stalking someone, then they can use that DNA to run some tests that can help police predict what color of hair, what color eyes, 
and what color skin the person might have. Okay. They can also use to, to predict what age the person might be. And they can also try, although this is more difficult, to predict where the person's ancestors might have come from. Wow, that's a lot of information that you typically don't see in, you know, a genetic test for, you know, forensic purposes. How reliable are some of these measures? Like how accurately can we know someone's eye color or hair color from their genetic data? That's controversial. And it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on how much DNA you have how degraded it might be, what Mm -hmm. quality it is, that makes a difference, how much information then the forensic scientist can read from the DNA. These things like eye color and hair color and skin color, those aren't just characteristics that are determined by one or even two or even three genes. There are dozens, if not hundreds of genes that are involved. Scientists know a fair amount and they're learning more all the time about the genes that influence that. But they have to rely on models that are based on databases that they collect information on people's genes and what those people actually look like. And then they use that data to build models that can predict what color hair or eyes the person might have. For certain traits like blue eyes or red hair, it's easier than for other traits because those traits rely on relatively fewer genes. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of these other items are more probabilistic. So it's a, an 80% chance this person has light hair, that kind of thing. Or even 60% chance. I'm curious about, you know, we're talking about Bavaria and Germany here. Is there a broader regulation at the level of the European Union or in different European countries? Or, you know, how is the U.S. handling this kind of data or this kind of investigation? Different jurisdictions handle it in different ways. There are some that have explicitly allowed it. For example, the Netherlands has a specific law that, that allows this kind of analysis of DNA. There are other places that don't have any regulations, but it's not because it's not expressly forbidden. Police departments and authorities have gone ahead and used it. In the U.S., it varies state by state. There are states that have said, no, it's not allowed. And there are states that don't regulate it at all. It's been used a couple of times in Canada. It's also been used in France, in the U.K., in the Netherlands. Switzerland is considering a law and may pass a law as early as this summer that would allow it for the first time there. Hmm. And, you know, we should mention that, you know, we talked first about eye color, hair color, skin color, but what about uh, geographical ancestry? Is that a different category? Is that a different level of difficulty, you know, in determining? It is. It's a different level. It's a different approach you have to take. Of course, your genetic ancestry isn't determined by even three or four or several dozen genes, your genetic ancestry, scientists can can piece that together based on how much your genes resemble those of other people whose ancestors came from a similar area, a similar geographical area. But that determination and that probability is based on a lot more genes than those that determine skin or eye or hair color. And so that is more difficult. It also depends on a lot of other factors. For example, how closely related two different populations are. Eastern and Western European populations, of course, there's been a lot of genetic mixing over the centuries. Um, and so they're fairly, it's fairly hard to tell those two populations apart. If you have a person from East Asia versus Western Europe or Southern Africa, then those populations are easier to tell apart because they've been separated longer. 
One thing I saw in the discussions about art for this article were these cards that show what look like computer-generated models of people's faces, hair, and eye color all kind of put down in one portrait. What are those? How are those used? Those are constructed by a company in the U.S., and those are also controversial. The company says that they take a standard face based on the purported culprit's geographical ancestry and their sex, whether they're male or female. And then they say that they can, from the DNA, identify certain certain genes that influence facial traits. For example, how wide or how narrow the face is. And then they emphasize the features that they say their analysis suggests might be unique about the suspect's face. But other scientists say that is way beyond what the science really allows. They say that the company has has neither published its methods nor, nor publicly released any evaluations of their technique. They, on their website, show images of their sketches and then photographs of people who were eventually caught and charged with the crime. Do they look pretty similar to your eye? Sometimes, yeah. But some of the people I talked with pointed out that human brains are really good at recognizing faces and you see what you're looking for. Um, And so to actually evaluate and to have a, a scientific validation for that technique, you'd need to take so many measurements of facial physical characteristics and then actually quantitatively measure how similar the faces are, the ones that they generate versus the actual face. Yeah. And um, they haven't done any of that validation, at least um, not, and they haven't made any of that public. There's a lot of surprises in this story. One other thing that surprised me was how you can tell age from someone's DNA. So it's pretty accurate. And and what what exactly are they honing in on when they evaluate someone, when they try to determine someone's age? This was something that surprised me too, frankly. I hadn't realized that this was quite as advanced as as it apparently is. But apparently there are age-related changes in the epigenetics of our genome. So the genes get turned on and off as they're being used by what are called methyl groups. Apparently, there are age-related patterns of methylation that they can use to estimate people's ages plus or minus four years. So if you have a suspect who is actually 30, the DNA might come back anywhere between 26 and 34. There's a lot of uncertainty, it seems like. There's, you know, some of these measures are a lot more valid than others. A lot of them have probabilities and modeling behind them. And some of them are just way far out there, like, you know, modeling someone's face. So how are police and and investigators and courts dealing with this kind of tricky evidence? That's something that people are worried about, frankly. Oftentimes, there's a perception that DNA evidence is the strongest most secure evidence out there because DNA doesn't lie. But people who have looked closely at this and those people who are working in the field as well say it's important to understand that all of these predictions come with uncertainties. Mm-hmm. And police and prosecutors who, who want to use this kind of evidence and judges and juries who need to evaluate it need to understand that. Some people point out that at least the uncertainties are known. You can quantify them for many of the tests. At least the hair color and eye color ones come with 75% or 85 or 90%. 
certainty that someone has discolor eyes. Since police often deal with wide varieties of evidence that have various levels of trustworthiness, that police are, are perfectly capable of evaluating DNA evidence as part of their overall case. Mm-hmm. But others say that it's really important uh, when this new kind of evidence is introduced that people understand fully what the certainties and what the uncertainties are. What are some of the things that people are concerned about with this technology? These tests are most useful when they point toward a group that isn't in the majority, right? Because if you're looking for a suspect, you're looking for something unique about the suspect. That's what makes it easier to find. And so the danger is that these tests will only be useful when they point to a minority group. Because if you've got a thousand people in the town and 800 of them have blonde hair, then a test saying that the perpetrator has blonde hair isn't actually that helpful. You've you've eliminated 200 people in, right. in your town, but you've still got a majority who are possible suspects, at least according to this one test. So it seems like at this point, the trend is to allow this kind of thing to go forward, not to prevent this kind of information from being used in criminal cases. That's correct. The, the trend is definitely toward allowing it in, in more and more cases. And the science is also getting better. People are working on this and, it's, and there are more data than there were 10 years ago. People understand more about which genes influence some of these traits. And the databases and the models are gradually getting somewhat more reliable. That doesn't mean that they're completely reliable. And the people who are worried about the use of this say that uh, it's still important to remember that's the case. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Gretchen Vogel is a staff writer for Science. You can read this story and more at sciencemag.org news. Stay tuned for an interview with Jill Fernandez on scanning mosquitoes for Zika using light. This week's episode is brought to you in part by LinkedIn. I usually use LinkedIn for updating my profile, connecting with other people, journalists, scientists, people who listen to the podcast. But did you know that LinkedIn is actually a great place to post a job when you're looking to hire? Many more people spend time on LinkedIn for other reasons, like the things that I do, rather than going to job boards and specifically searching around. LinkedIn has profiles of you, profiles of your employers, the people you're connected with, and are much better able to connect your job post to potential hires. And 70% of the U.S. workforce... It's already on LinkedIn, and people are on there reading the news, connecting with others. It's a natural part of networking. So why not present the job where the people already are? Just ask hundreds of thousands of businesses who've posted to LinkedIn jobs over the past year. They rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality to candidates. Because LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, location, and much more to match and promote your job to potential candidates. If you're not using LinkedIn for your hiring needs, you're missing out. Go to linkedin.com slash science mag to get a $50 credit towards your first job. That's linkedin.com slash science mag for your $50 credit today. Terms and conditions apply. Mosquitoes carry malaria. They carry chikungunya. They carry dengue. Zika. And I'm sure I'm, I'm missing a few here, but how can you tell if the flying, buzzy, 
little bug that's flying around your head is a real threat or just setting you up for a few hours of itching. Usually looking for infectious disease agents inside of mosquitoes is time intensive and costly. Now researchers writing this week in Science Advances describe a streamlined process for finding Zika inside of mosquitoes. Jill Fernandez is here to talk about her group's work. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. I kind of paint mosquitoes as the bad guys in my intro, and I know you're an entomologist, so do you have do you have any defense of mosquitoes that you'd like to make at this point? I guess my only defense of mosquitoes is they have evolved with humans for a very long time. Basically, since the beginning of human evolution, there have been mosquitoes, and we think that some infectious diseases have been involving with mosquitoes in humans since that time. So it's all sort of one ecosystem as opposed to an enemy relationship. (laughs) Good point. Good point. Okay. Let's talk about the testing research here. How is Zika normally detected in mosquitoes? So normally you would use polymerase chain reaction, which is a pretty standard protocol in science nowadays, but it does require a lab in most cases, and it requires reagents. So samples have to be sent off to a lab, and you'd have to wait for results. What is your approach that you write about in advances? How is it different? So this approach doesn't use any reagents. It's a light-based technique, and it uses near-infrared light, which is light that's just below the visible range. And this light is used to actually penetrate substances and determine what their composition is. Oh, so you shine a light on a mosquito and then you have something that reads that light on the other side? Yeah, so there's basically a spectrometer is just a light and a sensor. And so the light goes into the mosquito. Uh, Some of those wavelengths are absorbed and some of them aren't. And then a sensor reads back what was absorbed. And based on which wavelengths are absorbed, we can sort of tell the chemistry. And we can see differences in the chemistry between Zika-infected mosquitoes and normal mosquitoes. Okay, so the Zika, it causes a change in what's absorbed and transmitted in the mosquito. And is it a signal specific to Zika? I mean, does it pick up Zika versus, say, malaria? So we don't know yet. (laughs) We know that there's a difference between Zika-infected and uninfected mosquitoes, but we haven't tested it side-by-side yet with other uh, infectious diseases. So this sounds way quicker. I mean, and you don't have to add liquids and have a PCR machine and all that stuff. So is this just cheaper and also on location? Well, once you have a machine, uh, a spectrometer, it's virtually costless so because there's no reagents. So it's really just the time of the person to operate it. Does the mosquito have to be alive? The mosquito can be dead. And there are different preservation methods that have been tested. For this study, we just knocked down the mosquitoes. So they were just just barely dead, I guess you could say. Just because they need to be still, (laughs) they can't be flying around. What about your accuracy? I mean, PCR, that might yield a result that's pretty close to, you know, 99% accurate. How about how about this test? In this study, we got accuracies in the upper 90s compared to PCR. And the sensitivity was better than the specificity. So what we envision is that 
you know, if you had thousands of mosquitoes to screen, you could go through this and this would pick out the ones that are arbovirus infected versus not. And maybe it would get some of them wrong, but if it got them wrong, it would be overly cautious in the sense of being too sensitive. And then you could do PCR on those few and determine whether it was correct. What is this information just to tell whether a mosquito that bit you had Zika or is it more about surveillance, like looking at a town or an area and saying, we have a lot of Zika carrying mosquitoes here? This study was done in in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro. And what we sort of envision is that if you could collect thousands of mosquitoes from different areas of Rio, then you could say, oh, this area has a high prevalence of infected mosquitoes. So we should really target treatment at this neighborhood level versus just spraying the whole city. So it could provide a more targeted approach. Are you looking at other um, diseases that are carried by mosquitoes besides Zika to see if they do have their own signal. So I mentioned malaria, but chikungunya, dengue. I mean, those are, dengue and Zika are closely related, right? So it might it might be difficult to tell them apart in using this method. Yeah, so it would be really interesting to see whether we can detect dengue and specifically whether we can differentiate between Zika and dengue and other arboviruses. As you mentioned, they are very similar. Yellow fever has a slightly different uh, reaction for the mosquitoes, so maybe we would expect a different signature. But this is something that needs to be investigated. It would be great from a scientific perspective if we could distinguish them. But even if we could just tell virus infected or not, I think it still might be of value in surveillance. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much, Sarah. Jill Fernandez is an entomologist at the Queensland Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation at the University of Queensland. Stay tuned for our monthly book segment. Jen Golbeck interviews Sarah Jane Blakemore about her book, Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Golbeck, and we're back with another book. This month, we're talking with Sarah Jane Blakemore about her new book, Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain, where she shares the science of how the brain develops through puberty and how it impacts behavior and decision making. Sarah Jane, it's great to have you joining us. And could we start with you explaining why I was such a terror when I was in middle school? Until about 20 years ago, that kind of typical teenage behavior like um, moodiness and self-consciousness and risk-taking and impulsivity and being particularly uh, interested and influenced by friends was all put down to um, hormones, hormonal changes of puberty, and also um, social changes like going from small junior schools to big senior schools. But that's because 20 years ago, we didn't have any information about how the brain develops during the teenage years. And the massive assumption was that the brain didn't go through much change after childhood. But we now know that that's not true at all. And in fact, the human brain continues to develop right throughout childhood and right throughout adolescence and even into the 20s. What are those physical and structural changes? In terms of structure, the brain changes its amount of gray matter and white matter. So gray matter is found mostly in the cortex of the brain, that's the surface of the brain. And gray matter 
increases in the cortex during childhood. It's highest in late childhood. And then it starts to rapidly decline. And there's a huge decline in grey matter that continues right throughout adolescence and only starts to stabilise in the 20s. At the same time, there's a very steady linear increase in white matter, which uh, white matter is found mostly in the in the centre of the brain and contains axons, the fibres that connect up uh, neurons together and connect up brain regions together so that they can communicate. Um, and white matter increases linearly throughout childhood, adolescence, even into the 20s, 30s and 40s. And then these structural differences, they can affect behavior and thinking patterns. And I'd like to look at some specific ways that those manifest, maybe starting with an example that I run into a lot. I'm a computer scientist and I study social media. And almost any time I talk about my work, someone says, well, this generation doesn't care about privacy at all. In every generation, kids do stupid, risky things. So this generation just happens to be around with a technology where privacy is a new risky thing and they can put their stupid stuff online. Yeah, I completely agree with you that teenagers across two or three generations haven't completely changed. Um, It's just a tool that enables teenagers to make those social contacts and to comment on what their friends are doing very easily. Um, We didn't have that when I was a teenager, but I'm sure we would have, yeah, taken to Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever if we, if we could have done. Um, in terms of uh, risk-taking, again, I mean, I don't think there, are, there will have been huge changes in risk-taking as a kind of fundamental cognitive process across the generations. In fact, if you look back at uh, quotes by, you know, Shakespeare 400 years ago, even Aristotle and Socrates over 2,000 years ago, they're talking about risk, uh, risk-taking teenagers, making bad decisions, being lazy, um, not paying attention to authority. They're, they're complaining about teenagers in exactly the way society slightly denigrates teenagers today. So I don't think much has really changed at a fundamental level. Um, over many, many generations. So do we know what is at play in the brain that affects risk-taking analysis? We know from research uh, in experimental psychology and cognitive neuroscience over the last 10 or 20 years that teenagers do undergo a period of life where risk-taking increases. But the really critical factor here is that firstly, there are huge individual differences, but also the context of risk-taking, I think, is the really critical factor in adolescent risk-taking. So particularly the social context, if you think about the types of risks that adolescents Uh, some adolescents take, like smoking or drinking or dangerous driving. These are are risks that adolescents don't tend to take when they're on their own, but instead they take when they're with their friends. There's a real increase in peer influence on risk-taking during adolescence. With so much structural change happening in the brain, it seems like it's a risky time where we could really mess things up if we're not careful. Does something like drug use carry enhanced risks if people start it when they're adolescents? There is some evidence that smoking cannabis early in your teenage years carries a risk for developing psychosis later on. And generally the finding is that the earlier you smoke it and the more you smoke, the bigger the risk. Um, That's not to say that every young person who smokes cannabis is going to develop psychosis, of course not. Um, But it does suggest that smoking cannabis isn't very good for your brain, particularly if you have a genetic predisposition for mental health problems like psychosis. 
And let's talk about mental illness regardless of drug use, because it seems like a lot of it develops at this age. Your doctoral and postdoctoral work was on schizophrenia, a really debilitating psychiatric condition that can cause symptoms like hearing voices and extreme paranoia. What did you find in that research that led you to eventually study the teenage brain? Whenever I asked patients when did they start experiencing these symptoms, without a single exception, every every person with schizophrenia said at some age between 18 and 25. And that's what made me interested in the question of, well, what's going on in the teenage brains of teenagers who then go on to develop schizophrenia? Now, that was about, I don't know, 17 years ago that I became interested in that question. And back then, very little was known about how even the typically developing human brain changes, let alone the teenage brain of young people who go on to develop mental illnesses. So that's when I decided to change the focus of my own research. And I've been looking at the development of the teenage brain ever since. Now, one thing to say at this point is that it's not just schizophrenia that first appears in adolescence. It's most mental illnesses have their onset in adolescence before the age of 24, at some point between the early teenage years and 24. So there's something about adolescence that makes it a vulnerable period for the development of mental illness. And that, in a way, is why so many people in this field are really motivated to understand the development of the teenage brain, because they really their real ultimate goal is to understand why teenage brain development can sometimes go awry and mental health problems can start. Well, Sarah Jane Blakemore, thank you so much for joining us. The book is Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain, and it's out this month. And that's it for May. We'd love your feedback at the Science Magazine books blog, Books et al. And we'll be back next month with another book for your stack. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen to the show on our website where you can also read about the research and news stories discussed in the episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.